All right. Hey, Dad. Hey, Sade. How are you doing? I am doing all right. Um, how are you? Having fun today? That is good to hear. <laughs> um, I have a question for you. Yeah? Um, when did you know that you wanted to be a professor? Oh, I didn't. I wanted to be an astronaut. I know that. So, like, when did it switch? When I failed the vision test. <laughs> You know what? Okay, we'll take it. We'll take it. I mean, it's the truth. I like it. Well, I, so for those of you guys who don't know, I'm like scrambling and they have a question. Um, not for those of you who don't know. Everybody doesn't know. We recorded part of this episode and I had some technical difficulties. So here we are recording it again. So we're just going to jump right into it. Is that all right, Dad? It works well for me. Okay, perfect. So today we wanted to talk about the overpopulation myth and ecofascism. So for those of you guys who don't know, um, there is this kind of common rhetoric around humans being the virus or like I think we saw it a lot with the pandemic uh, where like nature is healing and this myth that overpopulation is a big driver of climate change and so we wanted to talk about that myth a little bit um, and the concepts of ecofascism and and why this belief is kind of not true and based in a lot of not so great isms so do you want to kick it off? Sure I'm happy to and I hate to nerd out from the first minute, but I'm going to nerd out from the first minute in the sense that one of the really controversial papers that came out was actually published in the journal that I edit, Environmental Research Letters. And the researchers found that the biggest thing you could do to reduce your carbon footprint was to have less children by a big margin over the next things, which were driving a more sustainable vehicle, whether that's not driving at all, taking public transport or an electric vehicle, and then also converting to a plant-based diet. And all of these are kind of true analytically, but one of the challenges of this issue about your carbon footprint of being a parent is that your kid's carbon footprint is sp spread out over their whole life. And so it's kind of weird to sum that all up in what your child's footprint's going to be. So it's not wrong, but it's a it's a particular use of the data. And so it started a lot of these conversations around how much is population and the population boom that was all the fear in the 1960s going to be the main driver of our human environmental footprint. So that's if that sounded bad, that's not where the nerding out starts. <laughs> the nerding out starts here. And that is in my field of sustainability, there's been a four or five or six decade long argument over something called the IPAT relation or the IPAT equation. And that is impact is equal to population times affluence times technology. And it's not an equation, it's just a way to track data, but you can already see from the beginning, population, affluence, and technology look like they're co-equal terms in that equation, P times A times T. And of course, every person counts as a one unit of P, but the problem is, and as we've seen with the lifestyles of the rich and famous of the world's billionaires, that that affluence term can be so massively overwhelming Right. One individual can be equivalent to tens or hundreds or thousands of other people. And so on the one hand, 
population is in there. Let's make no mistake. It's part of the equation. But our consumption or overconsumption is even more dominant. And that's really where not only we need to do the math right, but we need to recognize that entitlement and environmental colonialism is such a big feature of the human footprint on the planet. All peas, all people are not created equal in terms of their damaging effects. 100%. And and obviously, we've talked a little bit about this, but um, you know, in past episodes, we've talked about things like personal responsibility, and that really comes into play here, right? Which is this question of, you know, how much of this onus of climate change work is on you as an individual? And, you know, what I think you mentioned when we started recording this before is that that equation really gets into the heart of kind of the foundations of this eco-fascist movement. And so I brought up um, this this Fisher letter, who was a, a Yale professor, Irving Fisher, who basically uh, responded to this 1909 Roosevelt National Conservation Commission report um, talking about, you know, the kind of the foundations of this environmental <laughs> eugenics movement, which is that public health is better if we are no longer kind of um, breeding quote unquote paupers and that, you know, there's a worry over the race suicide of the Northern European stock, um, you know, and that unhealthy people shouldn't be able to reproduce. And so I guess, you know, where the human rights side of this comes in is when you're, when you're advocating that people shouldn't be having children on the basis of climate change, A, you're kind of targeting the wrong population because there's super wealthy people or this affluence, coefficient is high are going to have children kind of no matter what you say but it also puts this onus on you know kind of undesirable people in communities which is this really heavy eugenics feeling and so that also comes into play when this when this myth comes out and which is why you've you've seen this kind of you know overpopulation environmental element pushed by the far right which has been very interesting to kind of see that side of things well let me kind of glom on to the fisher letter with the parallel bad piece from Harvard. So if we're going to critique, you know, our universities. um, Our universities. That's right. So Larry Summers, former president of Harvard, former secretary of treasury, when he was um, the chief economist of the World Bank, he wrote in 1991 the famous Summers memo where he said, let me float a modest proposal. And that is that developing countries are under polluted. And his argument was this. It was Wait, I'm that- gonna pause you really quickly because when I first hear that, I think like that is correct in that these countries should be given or there's an argument to be made where these companies should be given the space to catch up to these companies that are these companies. These are countries, not companies. Although well, sometimes it's hard to know. <laughs> my bad. Um that, you know, it's like, oh, it makes sense that impoverished companies have not been polluted to the to the point that other countries have and should be given some wiggle room. But that is not where this goes. And so that I'll is not where this goes. Into that. So so in some sense, what you're saying is they're not polluted to the fullest like some of us are. However, the point of this memo was a little bit different. And it was the following. It was that if you look at the quote unquote value of a life in an industrialized country versus a developing country, the income that you're going to generate over your lifetime, because the economies are poorer in sub-Saharan Africa and Central America and Southeast Asia, that the value of life lost due to pollution 
was much less in a poor country than a rich country, just because of the metrics of how we value it, that therefore countries that want to get ahead should essentially sacrifice their citizens because the loss side of that equation is low, whereas the gain side is high. And so I have to like put a big, big time out in the middle of this equation. Summers got roasted for it. And his response was sort of, well, A, it was in jest and, ah, you know, when I make a mistake, it's a doozy. So, but I would say all of that is complete kind of avoidance of the fact that this mentality absolutely exists and is right. prevalent in the economic measures we use to look at GNP, the value of citizens. And if we sacrifice a few thousand citizens here or there in poor countries, well, it might be good for the economy. And so what I really see as the eco-colonialism here is the degree to which population is an issue. We are living on a hot, overcrowded planet, to quote Tom Friedman. That is true. But valuing lives and valuing our ability to contribute is something that we bias every metric towards the rich, not towards the poor. So it is 100%. an ugly mess. Yeah. And and I think this like hits back at the core for me of this argument um, I think it's interesting kind of the terms that we use. I think I went with fascism, which is definitely a little stronger than your language. But, you know, I, I just think the issue that you run into is that all of these people who have kind of embraced eugenics as the response to overpopulation have targeted vulnerable populations. And and that's what you're always going to have an issue with with this is, you know, maybe overpopulation is a concern for climate change, which it obviously is. Like, it's an element. It's not the element, right? It's not the number one driver behind climate change in a lot of ways. It's it's who has the power and access. But when you advocate for population solutions, you end up kind of throwing these people who are marginalized already under the bus. And so for me, even if this was kind of the be-all, end-all solution, I think you would have to find very interesting ways to work this where you wouldn't kind of be continually harming underprivileged populations. So I guess there's there's a couple things here. One oh. is that there, there's a that there's a lot baked into this kind of environmental, and I would really argue it's actually more economic than environmental racism, segregation. But I think that there are some interesting things and there are battles going on in the U.S. government and elsewhere that have a chance to turn this around. So one thing that President Biden signed as an executive order in January of this year was a an edict for the federal government to use a new metric called the social cost of carbon in its analysis of projects. And the social cost of carbon is not just whatever the market price of carbon is. It reflects directly the damage to underserved communities, the damage to the environment due to our economic activity. It's not just our fossil fuel activity, but it's everything which is degrading communities and the environment. And the federal battle over this right now is fascinating because it is on one level just simply a new metric and we create new metrics all the time. It's probably simpler than the healthcare system and the healthcare metrics. I'm not sure that's saying much, but what it it speaks to me to, to be, it's an opportunity for us to integrate 
Black Lives Matter and the current political debate into operational things that governments can use. And it's not just the U.S. government. A number of other European countries are looking at these kinds of metrics that essentially green or humanize GDPs, gross domestic and gross national products. It's not, it's none of these are, of course, you know, single metric solutions, but we're at least seeing the dialogue getting broadened, even if there's lots of pushback against this one. Yeah, absolutely. So I have a question for you. Okay. So I guess this like basic argument is that like the oversaturation of humans on this earth um, is an issue and that some populations, black, brown, marginalized people are more of a problem than others. But this- Whoa, know, I'm going to stop you right there. Because I think- the basis of eco-fascism. I know, but, I, but what, what, I'm, what I'm saying is that that is the basis of this reactionary use. But what I've been trying to highlight is that even though we don't use it to its full extent, we actually have really good data that those people are not the ones that are causing environmental damage. No, I damage. agree with it's you. It's actually so that, the affluent. Okay, my question is coming. Jeez, Lou. So, <laughs> so a lot of these theories, of which those are the underlying premise, which was all I was saying, um, springs out of the principle of population essay, um, where basically the the underlying theory there was that when populations grow without without you know bounds they undergo exponential growth on a continuous time scale which which is the issue and i'm curious what your thoughts are on that as a scientist who kind of works in these spaces well i mean i would say that so that's thomas malthus's um yes. theory i mean that was the argument in the 60s that somehow not just poor people but all people and particularly they're worried about population growth rates in poor countries, so it's effectively against people <laughs> of color, um, was going to overwhelm the earth. But we have now seen decades of data coming from the World Health Organization and the other population study centers that, in fact, human population is going to saturate and stop growing. Now, I would personally like it to stop growing at a much lower number than the than the 11 or 12 billion for which it looks like it's going. But it's no longer at all the case that population models see exponential growth. They all see saturation. The problem is in what you're in what you're highlighting is that many reactionary groups are still using that fear-mongering over population growth in poor countries. And it's not just the U.S. worrying about kind of Mexican immigrants. You're seeing it in Europe with North African. You're seeing it right now in who's going to accept the Haitian I mean, you or also the see Afghan refugees. Like you see this when people are talking about like who shouldn't be having more kids in America, right? It's like if you can't afford it, don't have more kids. And, you know, oftentimes these kind of eugenics things will always target marginalized populations. There's no question. I mean, we have a long, ugly history from the Tuskegee experiments to all kinds of efforts that have utilized the veneer of science to get at preserving wealth in the, in the affluent. And so when I look at the different communities in the country and their response to, for example, COVID, I'm much, much more sympathetic to the argument that you see, for example, in the African-American community that- right. Yes, I get the standard set of vaccines, but I am reluctant to, to take this one because 
of this history. That's a very different argument than the anti-vaxxers right. who on the one hand don't get vaxxed. On the other hand, when they get sick, they want the monoclonal antibody treatment. Right. And like, I don't know if people have seen, there's a study that was showing that there's really low vax rates among black resident, um, black RN assistants. And the reason for that is they have seen kind of the underbelly of the medical system and have seen how it treats people of color in addition to these like systemic major failings and huge like scale experiments on black people and it's really hard to convince someone who has seen how much this government has hurt them and people who look like them to do something like get what feels like an experimental vaccine now i want to be very clear right now that this vaccine has been through a lot of testing if you're not vaccinated i have a hard time believing that you're already this far in our podcast but i would strongly (laughs) urge you to get vaccinated um to protect not only yourself but the people around you but I do understand that there are places where vaccine hesitancy comes in where it feels like this government has done a lot of harm. And it makes sense to be scared of things that the government is offering you, especially when the government's offering them to you for free, which this government has continually failed to do, especially with regard to health. So it's a, I mean, it's it's a deep story. And so there are trite words in some way, but the, the, the conversation that I see among indigent and, and minority populations coming into the health system is that healthcare professionals need to meet people where they are and need to work with and to explain and to find role models that they can talk about it, which is why, for example, the debate in the, in the, in the NBA right now in basketball, where, oh, for example, God. the Lakers are 100% vaccinated, but we first had a player on the Warriors and now we have a high profile player on the Nets saying I'm not going to get vaccinated. And it's a battle of livelihood versus their own individual freedoms and worries about these issues. And so that's I'm a case of- I'm not to expose of- the name, but an NBA player <laughs> did just like me on a dating app and his entire bio is like, I refuse to get the vaccine. Like the vaccine is fake. And I was like, oh, come on, bud. We're not going to hit it off. Well, as the dad in this intergenerational, I am certainly glad that you have a filter which is excluding this NBA player because- Do you want to know what my go-to question is? So this is really interesting. So when I date on dating apps, I'm I'm pretty cognizant- I don't want to hear that either, but okay. Okay, here we go. I'm pretty cognizant to not date people where I feel like my safety is at risk, which has very much evolved since- you know, BLM in 2020. And so I go, my go-to question is, who did you vote for in the primaries? Which I think says a, a lot. And it really helps kind of gear in on people's, I guess, moral stances and the way they talk about who they voted for, which isn't to say that there's like, I mean, there are some candidates that are immediate, you know, exclusions from my dating pool. But, you know, for most, I think that's a very interesting question and it really points to values very quickly. So much for talking about, you know, what activities do you like or sporting events? Uh, no, it's when how you, tall are you and who did you vote for in the primaries? When you're, that's right, when, when your dating filters are. So this is interesting. Um, of course, as yeah. a dad, I think I'm going to cover my ears and, and say, I don't need to know. You know. That's right. Um, but no, so I guess like back on this topic for our last like couple minutes. Uh, yeah, I think I think this is a really hard topic. And I think it's hard to like have these discussions under a system that is so historically failed marginalized people, um, where the population discussion is one that should be had and is important. But it's hard when all of the frameworks have such horrible bases. I think there's no question. And, and again, 
I don't think that geeking out on this is the only element. I think it's it, this is much more of a social conversation. But I do think that there's a lot of interesting wisdom and debates in, in going into that equation that I so much love, this iPad <laughs> equation, because, because it gives you a framework to understand racism and biases. And when I first learned about this when I was you know in graduate school, that wasn't part of the conversation. This is all about should it be using fossil fuel or renewables, kind of the T part of that PAT. Now we are moving way too slow, but we're starting to recognize that these social and racial issues are ones that we can build into these frameworks. And whether you think it's a cop-out or whether you think it's actually progress, if we're able to understand systemic racism and biases in the cold, hard equations, it sounds a little bit like Isaac Asimov's foundation series or something, that this to me is an important evolution. Because if we don't measure it, we're not going to be able to address it. And that's not Absolutely. the whole story, but it's at least a start. Absolutely. Yeah, I think this is like very, it's hard. It's hard to have these discussions with nuance, I guess, like is the issue that we run into. Like, it's really hard to have these discussions. And I mean, you and I have talked a little bit about this, like why I want to go into academia, but through this pit stop of social work is that I think it's very easy to only see like the whiteness in academia and like fail to talk about the population's and the actual effects it has on people. And academics are very good at looking at statistics and things broadly. And so I think this intersectional approach to academia is so exciting and so cool. So let me kind of, this is not a, this is not a digression, but it's an interesting example of that. And so here at, U at University of California, Berkeley, we did a hire two years ago in the intersectional area of environment and justice. And we hired a wonderful candidate um, who studies food production and gender violence in Africa. Um, and that hire was seen as so in line with the campus's response to BLM and other issues that they authorized something which has never happened before in my 21 years here. And they said, okay, now go ahead and do a cluster hire of five people in this area. We just finished that hire. I just had lunch with that group of five faculty members and other departments said, well, we don't want to be left out. So we're going to reposition hires that we are planning through other means. And so suddenly we went from one to five to 13 faculty, all of whom are working on climate or environmental justice issues. And they are now working through the process of are they going to become an institute, a center? But each right. one of them is really focused on field and outreach. So one of them um, works on environmental injustice to migrants along the U.S.-Mexican border. Another one looks at climate adaptation in the U.S. West. Another one, a historian, looks at the migration of Latinx peoples across the U.S. and how their paths of migration and where they landed and what jobs they found were so different than white settlers. And hmm. what, what she sees um, is a migration of Latinx people to be workers on mega farms, factory farms in the U.S. West and factory livestock, whereas white people in their caravans crossing the country, something that your grandma, my mom has written about, they migrated and became the city 
affluent bankers and others. And so wealth creation in the white community and wealth destruction in the Latinx community was part of the settling of the U.S. West. So it's a really, you know, I am so pleased that we're doing this higher. And I guess I'm more interested to know what kind of new directions of engaged scholarship will they do that would not have even started without this cluster, which gives them all kind of a touch point and a community to work from. Yeah, absolutely. That's so cool. It's, it's you know, none of these problems are solved, but it's a nice step in the direction. And I definitely don't see these kinds of hires, at least very often in my my experience, these clusters. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And like, we need to start decolonizing academia. And, you know, I'm in the mental health field and all of these studies are based on college age white men. And it's so important that we start viewing these things as not monolithic. So I'm, you know, excited to see this, this path in academia. Yeah. I mean, it's a key stuff to do. So, okay. Uh, All right. Do you have a question for me? I do. It's a two-parter. Oh, God. It's not a hard one. So, and and maybe we'll come back and do a whole show on this later on. So first question is, what's your favorite movie or movies, but separate? I know. I like that. And what movie or movies were most impactful on you as a kid? You know, the answer to both is probably Lord of the Rings or so I this is actually a big deal because I've just admitted <laughs> to the public that I only watched I've only seen in my life. I would say like under 100 movies because I've either like not paid attention or fallen asleep in the movies that I've seen. And so I watch the same couple movies over and over. And so my list of movies I've seen is very short. So I rewatched Lord of the Rings. Uh, all three extended editions, obviously. Uh, National Treasure, one and I was hoping that would make an appearance. <laughs> Princess Diaries, two. And the Star Wars, uh, I would say the 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 first six. I know everyone hates me for that. I don't hate Jar Jar Banks, and I'm sorry, but I stand in my truth. But the um, last three, not so good. Right. Oh, I agree. But so, yeah. So I watched the same couple movies over and over. So those are my movies, which is humiliating in LA where everyone's like, oh, have you seen the experimental, like silent black and white film from Sweden? And I'm like, no, like I haven't seen the most recent like Marvel movie, let alone your weird dig for film. So I do watch a lot of documentaries. I love a good documentary. Well, still, I mean, the fact that Lord of the Rings is so key because the first long reading project you and I did when you were probably too young for it was me reading you Lord of the Rings, but also scanning ahead through the long poems and soliloquies and trying to pre-translate in my head. And of course, I cried at the end of Lord of the Rings while reading it to you. That's the only time I can remember you crying. (laughs) Well, that's right, because the Grey Havens... Not even when I went to the mental hospital. (laughs) Well, Lord of the Rings, pretty pretty traumatic. (laughs) Jeez, Lou. All right. Well, thank you, Dad. We'll talk to you guys later. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you all. All right. Bye. Bye.